Green Senator Lydia Thorpe, a Jabwurung Gunai and Gudjipmara woman, is under fierce political attack. Many of her critics want to drive her out of the party or even out of Parliament altogether. Now, the official reason for this offensive is her failure to declare a brief relationship with a former leader of the rebels' bikey gang in Victoria, Dean Martin. But the real agenda is a crude attempt to punish Thorpe for holding views that grate with the establishment, criticisms of the voice to Parliament, contempt for the monarchy and everything that smacks of colonialism, and a willingness to call out and fight racism against First Nations people. She was part of the campaign to save the Jabwurung sacred trees in Western Victoria. She's been an organiser of the inspirational Invasion Day rallies in Melbourne and took part most recently in the anti-monarchy rally in Melbourne. And she's also spoken many times at Refugee Action Collective protests, calling for freedom for refugees. She's being punished for being a loud, fearless, black working-class woman who doesn't play the game of politics in the same way as those who have entered Parliament after apprenticeships as lawyers, ministerial staff, or even union organisers. Now, many people have come to Thorpe's defence on social media, but unfortunately, all too few prominent figures. One person who has taken a principled position is Jonathan Sriranganathan, or Jono Sri, as he's known to many people. Jono is a Greens member of Brisbane City Council, and I'm talking to him today. And for those who are not from the, that area, I should point out Brisbane City Council is not just a local suburban council. It's a very big entity. It covers the entirety, really, of the Brisbane metropolitan area. You're listening to The Sound of Solidarity, brought to you by Solidarity. We're a revolutionary socialist group in Australia, and if you'd like to find out more about us, our website is solidarity.net.au. I'm David Glanz and I'm recording this episode on unseated Wurundjeri land in Narm or Melbourne. So welcome, Jono. Thanks. Yeah, good to be part of the discussion. I'm coming at you from Wollongabba on Yagara and Turbul country. And I also want to pay my respects to the elders of this place. Now, you've written that, and I'm quoting, for Lydia Thorpe, it's now at the point where even relatively minor indiscretions, like once getting angry at someone in a meeting are blown out of all proportion. So, in your take, what's behind this relentless drive to damage Lydia Thorpe? Well, as you said, Lydia holds and expresses views that are deeply threatening to the political establishment and Australia's sort of elite class more generally. But she's also a proud Aboriginal woman, and it's that combination of holding and articulating radical views, but also occupying a subject position of someone from sort of an oppressed background and identity group. That's really what makes her existence and her presence in Parliament so threatening and destabilising to the establishment. So really what's behind this, in a nutshell, is racism. But more, more broadly, it's, it's the establishment kind of closing ranks and almost organically and instinctively responding to, to Lydia in such a way that's calculated to delegitimize her, to distract from the messages that she's trying to articulate and ultimately to push her out of a position of power and influence. And so it's, you know, I, I write in my piece that it, it's not necessarily even a coordinated smear campaign. It's almost like the different actors within the system 
just know the parts that they're meant to play in order to not tear down this in order to tear down this sort of stroppy outsider and yeah Lydia not only does she refuse to play by the rules and sort of the norms of of how people expect politicians to behave but because she is aboriginal she's held to a higher standard and her actions are, are being scrutinized much more aggressively and critically than any other elected representative that we've seen in recent memory really in australia and it's worth saying in your blog post, which I'll put a link to uh, with the with the uh, pod, with the podcast when it goes up, you talk about actually your own experience in that regard as well. Yeah, and without wanting to make it too much about me, I, I probably am in a slightly similar position in that I'm I'm definitely not your sort of stereotypical city councillor. Everyone else in the chamber dresses in a suit, and I walk there walk in there in like my my t-shirt and, and thongs and whatnot. Um, and, and similarly to Lydia, I've, I've been quite proud to associate myself with civil disobedience and have helped organize protests. And I've also been quite outspoken about things like police brutality. And I've at a much smaller scale observed a similar phenomenon where after many years of the media running stories that paint me as a controversial figure or a divisive figure, that reputation becomes entrenched so that everything else I do is seen through that lens, through that sort of slanted reputation. Um, and I think the same thing is happening to Lydia at a far, at a, at an accelerated rate, at a bigger and, and faster rate, and, and is much more targeted and, and specific because she's a First Nations woman. And I think really this is, it, there, there's an important distinction to be drawn here between um, sort of the one-off clickbait headline where a politician makes a gaffe and then the media launches on it because it's a sort of sensational story what we're seeing here is a a long running you you it's it, i don't I, even the term pattern doesn't quite do it justice it, it it really is a phenomenon of ongoing heavy critique and scrutiny that feeds upon itself to the point where commentators where journalists and editors where the general public are completely losing all sense of perspective. And I think one of the most interesting little moments in the last week or two was when Bob Catter, another federal politician, said also disclosed that he didn't take the oath to the Queen very seriously. Um, so when Lydia was publicly sort of highlighting the ridiculousness of swearing allegiance to the Queen and um, tongue-in-cheek calling her a coloniser, etc., etc., People jumped down her throat. It was headline news. The conservative media was outraged. When Bob Catter said and did a similar thing, I was just like, oh, good on you, Bob. Um, and so there's a really stark difference there, which I think highlights it's not just about what Lydia is saying. It's also about her identity and, and the subject position she occupies in society. Now, I'm delighted to see that the Australian Greens First Nations Network has come out unequivocally in support of Thorpe. But for those of us who are not in the Greens, it seems from the outside like a lot of party members, including those on the left, have gone quiet on this issue. Why do you think people in the Greens should be speaking out? Well, I think it's really important for the Greens to speak out because, we A, we need to call out racism whenever it happens, and particularly when it's targeted at our elected representatives. But also because the nature of these kinds of smear campaigns is that they build upon themselves to the point where someone's reputation is so tarnished or distorted that 
they are subject to such a heavy degree of scrutiny that they can't even do their job properly anymore. And it, it could be getting to that point with Lydia where even the even completely benign actions or, or states, statements she makes will be read through that negative lens of that slandered reputation. And so things will be taken out of context. She'll be, you know, people will interpret her statements in the worst possible light, uh, which will impair her effectiveness materially. And so for that reason, Greens politicians and leaders, etc., need to be very staunch in pushing back against this sort of long-running pattern of smear campaigning and so that Lydia has the political space to do her job properly. And if, if we don't push back and if we don't say, call this out for what it is and be like, hey, look, this is really just most motivated by racism and imperialism, the attacks will keep coming. And that's, I think, the difficulty that within the party, probably some people still haven't come to terms with. And, and I think, generally speaking, Greens, politicians and members are subject to the same pressures of being disciplined by the political establishment. So you're constantly getting critiqued by the media, you're getting hounded by the major parties, you're always really cautious about being caught out in any kind of quote-unquote scandal. And so you become really risk-averse, your appetite for risk diminishes, you don't, you, you can no longer sort of coolly assess threats strategically. And I think maybe that's happened a little bit here with Lydia, where probably quite a few of the federal MPs in the party room and certainly a lot of members and other supporters, they, they're not really sure how to respond or they can't interrogate their own conscience about how best to respond. And so they're taking their cues from the conservative media. And if the corporate media says, oh, this is an outrage, then the members and greenies are like, oh, maybe maybe it is an outrage. I don't know. I can't. I don't have a sense of perspective anymore, but everyone else says it's an outrage, so I guess I should be concerned too. And and again, there's this sort of cyclical or snowballing effect. But the deeper issue here is is one of political strategy and how do radical and left-wing political movements respond to the inevitable attacks from the political establishment? And, you know, often there's kind of two two schools of thought or two, two paths you can take. One is to immediately acknowledge the error, um, take whatever steps are proportionate and, and necessary and, and try to neutralise the story so that it doesn't keep regurgitating itself in the news cycle for multiple days and weeks. The other approach, and, and the two can to some extent work in concert, the other approach is to say, hang on, this is clearly a political attack. There are powerful motives at play here. This is not a good faith, uh, proportionate criticism. This is being blown out of proportion deliberately as part of a smear campaign, and we're going to call it out, and we're going to stand by whoever's being attacked. Um, and not buckle under that pressure. And I think probably the Greens needed to do a little bit more of the latter and a little bit less of the former. I think, uh, you know, there's, there's, there is a big difference between, as I said earlier, responding to a one-off scandal or a one-off storm in a teacup versus how you respond to sustained ongoing attacks that are clearly motivated by racism, sexism, classism, etc. And so I think it's it's been reassuring to me that, in the days following, the Greens have been, you know, they've been sharing posts and saying, we stand by Lydia, we're proud of Lydia. So they are sort of indicating that they have her back. But perhaps the initial reaction was not well thought out strategically by Adam Bant and the Greens leadership in that the press release that Adam put out was very much like, look, this is a small issue and we're, we're dealing with it proportionally. But the 
act of asking Lydia to resign from her leadership position as deputy leader of the Senate, that decision to ask her to resign, I think, gave more fuel to the fire and sort of indicated to the conservative commentary, oh, well, I guess guess we were right and this is very serious because why would someone resign if it wasn't serious enough? And so there's kind of that tricky balance to be taken between like acknowledging that, okay, yes, maybe on some level she should have disclosed this, but that doesn't necessarily mean like we have to kick her out of the leadership position. And there's, we, we have to understand the political context this is happening in the fact that Lydia is the first Aboriginal woman to hold a leadership position in any party at the federal level. We've got other ministers, et cetera, but she's deputy leader of the Senate. That's a, you know, one of those sort of top four or five roles. And for the Greens to have their first Aboriginal federal senator holding that leadership position and then to be asked to resign has broader ramifications. And I think on for that reason was probably not the best response, but I guess time will tell. It, it, it certainly seems like there, there are a lot of people who aren't satisfied with that and who will continue to campaign and attack Lydia until she's hounded out of the parliament altogether. Yeah, while, while you've been talking, I was thinking of a parallel on the other side of the world, which we could all learn from, and that is the hounding out of office of the leader of the British Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn, who was hounded again and again and again on completely scurrilous grounds of being an anti-Semite, and the man doesn't have a racist bone in his body. There are many, many people who can vouch for that. But too often the Labour Party gave way and and responded as if there was a problem with anti-Semitism, as opposed to an establishment witch hunt of a man who stood and stands clearly on the left of the political establishment. And not only has he gone as leader, but the Labour left really has been gutted in Britain. So it seems to me that there's a, a very clear warning signal to those of us on the left here. If we don't stand around issues of principle with, with radicals, we, give, we, we risk giving away the very ground on which we all stand. Very much so. And there's a certain naivety, particularly among some people in the Greens, and I, I would tend to suggest that a lot of them maybe are more middle-class Greens or perhaps come from more privileged backgrounds, where they just don't expect to be attacked. They, they almost say to themselves, well, look, we're articulating common sense, evidence-based policies. These are policies that most people would fundamentally agree with. And then they're suddenly shocked when the establishment comes after them. And it's sort of like this abject surprise where they, they didn't realize that they were poking the bear. Um, and so sometimes I'm like, why did you not expect that they would come from a, for us? And I, I mean, in a way, it's a sign that the Greens are successfully projecting more power. And it's sort of, a, it could, should obviously be considered in the context of recent strong election results. But as the Greens grow, of course, they're going to be subject, subject to more and more political attacks. There's a sort of phenomenon in the growth of a political party where at first major parties don't even want to acknowledge your existence. They want to pretend you're not there because they don't want to give you any more oxygen. Every time uh, another politician attacks you, that gives you another platform to respond and talk to the media. And the major parties understand that. So for as long as possible, they've been trying to avoid talking about the Greens and pretending that we don't exist at all. Now that we're taking seats off them and more and more voters are swinging towards the Greens, that strategy is shifting. And the major parties, rather than just giving the Greens a free pass, are, are going to be 
attacking us and scrutinizing us really closely. Um, and I think Greens members and particularly elected reps need to be clear-eyed about that. This is not a one-off incident. There will be ongoing sustained smear campaigns and attacks, particularly at people like Lydia in the future. And we need to be more, as you say, principled and robust in terms of how we respond to that. It might be worth reminding listeners of a few facts, uh, like that Dean Martin, the man with whom Lydia had a, a brief relationship and apparently an ongoing friendship, had left the rebels before that relationship took place. He has no criminal record. And it's also worth pointing out he's an Indigenous man and they met because of a common interest uh, in opposing the deportation of Indigenous people. And it sounds bizarre that we even have to say that sentence, that Indigenous people can be deported, but there has been uh, a continuing risk for Indigenous people. And Dean Martin's brother, Shane, was deported to New Zealand and died there subsequently. So this is a very uh, real live issue. So let's think about other relationships. The one that springs to mind is New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian's long secret affair with Daryl Maguire. Not a, not a short-lived affair, um, but a long secret affair, which led to some very dodgy decision-making. Daryl Maguire was clearly making substantial sums of money out of his relationship with the then Premier, and yet the establishment, particularly the Conservative side of the establishment, closed ranks around Gladys Berejiklian and tried to defend her as long as they possibly could. The same sort of people who are declaring, like Peter Dutton, that Lydia Thorpe has no place in Parliament. So is that just racism or is it... What explains that kind of crass hypocrisy? The double double standard was so blatant that it became comical and farcical, right? Like, and and when we're talking about how different uh, uh, sort of alleged acts of wrongdoing are sort of treated, we have to consider it in the context of power. So Gladys is, was the premier. She wielded significant establishment power within the state of New South Wales, whereas Lydia, although she's a federal senator, she's not a minister. She has comparatively little structural power in that sense. Um, more to the point, the relationship Gladys involved in, there was very clear evidence that of actual what you might call favouritism or nepotism, where it wasn't just the perception of a conflict or the possibility um, that she might treat this treat her partner more favourably and, and that he'd get special deals out of it. There was actual evidence of that. So um, it, it was interesting when the initial response from people was like, oh, well, everyone had a go at Gladys when, when we found out about her relationship. It's like this is a qualitatively and fundamentally different thing we're talking about here. And I think the other piece of the puzzle that you touch on is that, you know, politicians having secret relationships with each other or indeed having long, deep friendships with mining magnates or with property developers or whatever, those relationships are not considered intrinsically improper just by themselves. Whereas the idea of a politician dating a bikey, the bikeys are one of those folk devils that are constructed, you know, to... to, um, Help, t- help turn people against each other and manufacture moral panics. And it's it's just interesting to reflect on the fact that, you know, they've, there have been plenty of property developers and, and, um, and people in the business sector who've had really dodgy records that politicians have been associated with or have been known to have close personal relationships with where um, everyone's just like, oh, yeah, all those people know each other. That makes sense. 
Whereas the idea that politician who comes from a working class background would have connections to other working class community groups and individuals is suddenly scandalous or shocking. And it's, it's again, another example of those sort of intersections of different forms of oppression. And, you know, you have to ask yourself, like, if if we want people from a, a diverse range of backgrounds and if we want working class people in the parliament, we shouldn't be surprised that some of those working class people will have connections to people who've been adjacent to or the target of state criminal activity, because the very construction of crime itself is political. There are lots of things in our society which really should be illegal, but are treated as perfectly legitimate. And there are lots of behaviours which are treated as illegal uh, when they shouldn't be. And so, you know, when, when we say, oh, has this politician been liaising with a criminal, yes or no, we have to start by recognising that crime itself is about power relationships and, and maintaining um, the concentration of power and, and capital in the hands of a privileged elite. And so you're right to say that in this in this case, um, Dean Martin doesn't have a criminal record and um, it seems that there really is a case of mountains being made out of molehills. But honestly, even if he did have a criminal record and he'd previously been involved in some break and enter or previous, you know, that that's sort of beside the point. The point here is that some people in society are targeted and criminalised and, and the nation state is that agent. It's, it's acting upon people in that way. So I guess we are right to point out that in this case, there's no, A, there's no evidence that Lydia actually passed any information to the guy and B, there's, there's no evidence that he was still connected to that quote-unquote criminal network. But even if he was, uh, that, that needs to be considered in that broader political context. And I think there are a lot of property developers who've been engaging in behaviour which ordinary people would deem to be corrupt. But politicians are still allowed to invite them to weddings and take them out for drinks and that sort of stuff. So it's good to have that perspective. And rather than those of us on the left getting caught in that position where we say, where we try to debate whether or not it was criminal or whether or not there was wrongdoing. We really need to bring it back to the broader conversation about power and the fact that they wouldn't be going after Lydia like this if not for the fact that she's a strong black woman speaking truth to injustice. Absolutely. I mean, no politician has ever been attacked for rubbing shoulders with bankers who have charged dead people fees or... I'm not aware of anybody being called out for being friends with mining magnets who blow up indigenous artefacts in order to make their next billion dollars. I mean, the other conflict of interest that strikes me is is never called out is basic things like MPs having investment properties or sending their kids to private schools. Now, if they have an investment property, they'll list it, but usually as a badge of pride rather than a badge of dishonour. But... As far as I'm aware, that doesn't stop them speaking out and voting on things like housing policy or on education funding. So I think you're right that there is a, a huge, um, there's a huge amount of vested interests which are simply taken for granted. Definitely. And, and maybe this is getting a little bit abstract, but I, I actually think that the, the entire framework of conflict of interest and declaring them, etc., is almost like it, it's a, a, it gives us a false sense of security that there are some kinds of checks and balances on the abuse of power. As you say, it's like, oh yeah, politicians, they can basically do whatever they want and liaise with whoever they want and own shares in whichever companies they want, as long as they declare it. And if, if they're upfront about how they're screwing over people, no one seems to mind. 
it, it's just kind of funny that particularly among like I have a lot of friends and followers in, who are like public servants or people who work in middle management and who they consider themselves progressive and concerned about corruption. And some of those people are really fired up about that element that Lydia didn't declare the conflict of interest. And that is the, the worst and most egregious thing um, imaginable. But it's, it's almost like this, this whole framework is a little bit of a d- distraction from the much more material and significant ways in which power is wielded and abused and which people ex- in, through which people exploit their positions of power every day. And so I, I, I also think it's funny, you know, like we, we could take this a step further really and talk about, say, how in, in the Queensland context, there was a lot of concern about inappropriate relationships between property developers and city councils leading to bad developments getting approved. And the state government responded by introducing a whole complaints framework to complain about councillors who'd engaged in misconduct. And of course, the way the, the rules are written, it ends up being used to target people like myself. And so I'm frequently the subject of misconduct complaints because I'm involved in organising a protest. Whereas the city councillors who vote to, in favour in favor of decisions that benefit property developers, that's still lawful and that's not even considered grounds for a misconduct complaint. And so the very frameworks such as conflict of interest, such as disclosure laws, they're all set up in ways that create a veneer of accountability and transparency, but actually serve to legitimise and entrench those unjust power structures rather than challenging them. You make the point in your blog post that the Greens need Lydia Thorpe more than she needs you. What do you mean by that? Lydia has definitely helped build and repair the Greens brand and Greens image with among First Nations communities, among activists. Um, as, as the party grows and achieves more establishment power, it, it's coming under very real and significant pressure to, I guess you'd say, co-opt or to sell out. And that hasn't really happened in a big way yet. But Parliament exerts a certain, you might almost say, stopperific pressure on its elected representatives. Um, and people get seduced by the easy path of incremental reformism. They stop pushing for big changes. They moderate and water down their radicalism and their sort of grand utopian views and visions for society. And as that happens, those left-wing political parties can lose touch with their support base and can lose credibility with the very people who helped build the movement. And I think there is a risk for the Greens that if we, uh, and I say this as someone who has a law degree myself, but if we if we elect too many environmental lawyers and if we elect too many um, doctors and people from the uh, upper class who are perhaps more susceptible to that kind of pressure towards reformism, we do risk losing touch with our radical base. And Lydia is completely at the opposite end of that spectrum. She's out there on the front line supporting and help and um, resourcing protest activity. She's also using her voice in Parliament very effectively articulating, I think she's an excellent public speaker and she sort of ticks a lot of those boxes of a kind of classical politician, but she's also defying norms in a a way that makes her very effective and and sensational. So she's kind of keeping the party true to its its grassroots radical roots, but is also helping the party connect to demographics who might be more cynical of the political establishment and who, who would be inclined to vote for the Greens if they think the Greens are outside that establishment. But as the Greens become more, quote-unquote, mainstream, those people will be turned off and look for other alternatives. And so, you know, people throw around the term anti-politics perhaps a bit too often, but 
there's a definitely a big chunk of the population who's cynical of politicians and politics in general and they want to support system outsiders and Lydia definitely fits that mold and so she's I think she's winning the Greens far more votes than she might be losing there are certainly some middle class people who might see her as a liability because she's turning off a few of those people from voting Greens but for for every upper middle class person who feels a bit affronted by Lydia's style and decides not to vote for the Greens there's probably another five working class people, five Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people out there who are saying, oh, she's speaking my language. I'm really excited about her. And so in that sense, I think she's a real asset to the party and the Greens movement more generally. In contrast, she now that she's elected, she's got a bit of a platform. She could probably effectively continue to elevate the issues she's talking about, regardless of whether she's a member of the Greens or not. And maybe there's some loose analogies to be drawn with people like Jackie Lambie and even to some extent Pauline Hanson, both of whom initially got into Parliament with support of larger parties. So Hanson first got elected with the Liberals and Jackie Lambie with resourcing from Clive Palmer. Once they have a platform and they've established a support base of their own, then they go go off by themselves, but they remain there within the Parliament able to advance their agenda. And I think Lydia's at the point now where she probably be able to win a Senate seat even just as an independent. But actually, I think she's she's a real solid green and is really committed to the broader values and the movement. But it's, yeah, it's, I think it's import, It's an important wake-up call and a reminder that a lot of the green senators, no one knows their name, they're not regularly quoted in the media and they're not seen as particularly politically re- relevant by a lot of Australians. Lydia is seen as politically relevant and she has helped make the Greens more relevant and has helped the Greens inject themselves into conversations that they otherwise would have been marginalised from. And so, yeah, in that sense, the party definitely needs her more than she needs them. What kind of response have you had to your blog post? I had one or two angry emails from sort of the usual suspects who probably would never be Greens voters anyway, saying, how dare you defend Lydia and how dare you associate with Lydia. But I've also had a lot of support, and it was interesting, even a few other... MPs and Green staffers were texting me and saying, I'm really glad you wrote that. And I think it was also about the timing, right? Like this whole scandal sort of blew up on the Thursday and then I put that out on the Friday evening. Um, and it was interesting that by Monday, maybe the the leadership of the party had shifted a little bit and was more firmly rolling in behind Lydia. But I think a lot of people were just sort of re- relieved to see that, oh, at least one Greens elected representative is clearly standing by Lydia. And that maybe gave others more confidence to do the same because there was a case really for that first 24 hours after it emerged that Lydia has been asked to resign. There was almost a sense, particularly in some sectors of like, you know, radical social media channels and stuff where it was like, oh, the Greens have turned their back on Lydia. That was sort of how, as you say, it was experienced by some people. So I think a lot of people were just relieved (laughs) to see that actually there are more layers to this and the party hasn't like made a unilateral or, or like a unanimous decision to to kick her out or anything like that but it was yeah it was also interesting i think to see how different demographics within the membership had very different takes on this and it was a good reminder for me that like the greens are a very broad um, movement now and yeah you've you've got a lot of different political ideologies and value sets all under that one banner of that one political party and it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out over coming years before I come to my final question on Lydia Thorpe, I just wonder if we can do a, a little bit of a segue. 
reflecting on what you were saying about what Lydia Thorpe brings to the Greens, because it is clear that the majority of Greens voters are still heavily concentrated in inner cities. I'm not saying there are no Greens voters beyond that. There clearly are. But there's clearly a concentration in the inner cities amongst young people, university trained, renters and so on. That seems to be now the classic demographic for Greens votes. And on that basis, uh, here in Victoria, there's a very good chance the Greens will pick up two more inner city seats in next month's state election. But the standing joke in Melbourne is that there's a road called Bell Street that runs through the northern suburbs and it's known as the hipster-proof fence because the uh-huh. Greens vote drops away so sharply once you go north of that fence. And there's probably an equivalent in Brisbane and Sydney as well. From your point of view, as someone who's clearly a radical within the Greens, how do you think the Greens can break out of that inner-city university graduate milieu and reach out to much broader numbers of working-class people? Mm, I think that's a very big um, question that probably deserves a whole conversation itself for another time. But um, I guess I'm reminded of the fact that before my election in 2016, all of Queensland was seen as hostile territory for the Greens. We had one Green senator elected in 2010, uh, arguably on the back of a really big advertising spend, and we just couldn't seem to grow the vote. We were flatlining. The, it, even in the inner city, our vote wasn't really rising. Uh, and then I, we broke through in the Gabba Ward in 2016 with my election and then picked up a state seat the year after. And we've grown much faster than the Greens in other states have since then. And so I think that alone highlights that just because a certain geographic area or territory is written off as, is written off as too hard doesn't mean it, it can't be won. But I think what we've done up here in, in Brisbane in particular is we've married traditional sort of core Greens values with a, a really strong critique of the political establishment and, and a broader-based message of um, taxing the 1% and, and redistributing that wealth towards social services and public housing, et cetera, et cetera. So we've taken a broader message, even when we, you know, it's not just talking about koalas and saving the trees anymore, even though that stuff is really important. It's really about meeting people where they're at empathising and connecting with the issues that they say are most important to them and then talking about how that can aligns with our policy platform rather than saying to people, you you say you're concerned about this, but no, you should be concerned about that instead, um, which I think is sort of a classic lefty error. So I don't, I don't want to be too... I don't think it's my place to say how the Greens need, should be connecting with people in regional areas. I think that's... I'm, I'm an inner city lefty as well. But I, I think, like... There's a, there's a lot to be said for one-on-one com- conversations and grassroots community organising. And it's worth pointing out that here in Brisbane, you know, we've just won three federal seats and they are not just inner city seats. Certainly they, each electorate has one end of it in the inner city, but the electorate of Ryan stretches right out to the rural fringe of Brisbane's western suburbs. It's, it's like cow paddock stuff out there. It's definitely... Uh, a, a voter demographic that would not normally be seen as Greens aligned. And and I, in that case, at least, we saw that people who demographically might not be as, as likely to vote Greens were still voting for us in that federal election. So if you reach people effectively with the right message and the political conditions are right, I think we can break through and reach beyond those bubbles. It, it is also worth pointing out, though, that 
really the the Greens vote for a long time has just been strongest among young people and renters. So there's a popular narrative of like, oh, it's privileged inner city people and this co- kind of correlation with, oh, property values are higher in the inner city, therefore all these inner city people are really well off. Um, actually, the, the people who are voting Greens, at least in my experience in the inner city, are the people who are worried about their rent going up and they're worried about being priced out of the inner city. And the Greens vote, it, you know, it, it seems to grow along lines of gentrification and as people start to feel more nervous about their housing situation they start to think more critically about broader unjust systems and exploitative economic relationships and that's part of what prompts them to vote greens so you know really the the reason it's not that people are in the inner city that they're voting greens it's that they're young renters who are terrified about the future and really there's a high concentration of those people in the inner city but they live everywhere my, look, my final question is really coming back to Lydia Thorpe. What do you say to people who admire her but are agonising over the importance of procedure and protocol? What's your final message? I think the core message is to not be suckered in by the moral panics and the conservative media spin and, and to continually ask yourself, whose agenda is this serving? Who benefits from the media spending a whole weekend focusing on one brief relationship that a Greens Aboriginal politician had. Who benefits from that and who who is detrimentally affected by that? That's that's a really important lens to apply to this stuff and to recognise that the major parties are continually backgrounding against the Greens. They're continually throwing mud. They're continually feeding journalists negative stories about Greens politicians and about other activists in an attempt to delegitimise de- the message. And and so we have to accept and be prepared for that and understand that just because the media covers something or just because there's a Courier Mail or a Herald Sun editor who says that something's really serious and is the worst thing in the world, we need to take that with a grain of salt and have a sense of proportion. So personally, I'm not even interested really in debates about whether what Lydia did was wrong or how wrong it was or... Um, what the appropriate sanction should be in. I'm much more interested in the fact that for months now, we have seen so many people going out of their way to continually attack and delegitimize her for the silliest things and to really often misrepresent stories quite egregiously in a way that borders on outright lies. And, and we have to ask ourselves, why is that happening? And, and once, we, once we start asking those questions, we see this smear campaign and this sustained wave of propaganda for what it really is. And, and that's the lens we need to take this stuff if we are to strategize effectively and, and build power for deeper change. Absolutely. And I think in closing, I'd like to note that while a 15-year-old Indigenous boy cannot walk home from school safely with his mates wearing school uniform, without being effectively lynched on the streets of Perth, then Lydia Thorpe, we need her anger and the anger of the community she mobilises around her more than ever before, because Black Lives Matter, and if Lydia doesn't say it, who the hell will? Big time, well said. Thanks for a great discussion. Thank you for your time.